The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Today we are going to cover about a chapter and a half worth of Scripture. At least that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. But we're going to cover a chapter and a half because it's really hard to divide up this section of Scripture. So if you would please open to Genesis chapter 46. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 39. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is on page 78, Genesis chapter 46. We are continuing to look at the life of Joseph. If you're new here and you're wondering, who is this guy Joseph? Joseph is the grandchild, uh, great-grandchild of Father Abraham, who had many sons. And Joseph is raised as the favorite of his father Jacob. He's one of 12 sons. Uh, The other sons hate him. They're jealous of him because he is his father's favorite. They conspire against him, and they sell him into slavery. He is bought by uh, traders and that, that purchase him in Canaan, bring him down to the land of Egypt, and sell him into Potiphar's house, where he serves as a slave for many years. And then he is wrongfully accused of, um, of rape, thrown into jail. And then through God's providence and grace... And master plan, Joseph rises up in power and becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph's brothers, 20 years after they sold him into slavery, are hungry. There is a famine in the land. They come to visit Egypt to ask for food, and they come to their brother Joseph, who they do not recognize because of of his Egyptian garb and his Egyptian language, and they ask him for food. Joseph is generous, gives him food, but also tests them to see if he can once again entrust his heart to them. They're not perfect, but they pass the test. And so Joseph reveals his identity to him. And we see this beautiful picture of reconciliation in Genesis chapter 45, which we looked at in detail over the last two weeks. And setting up for today's passage, I want to read to you Genesis 45, verse 9 through 11, because that brings us into today's passage well. Genesis 45, verse 9 says, After Joseph reveals his identity, And they're reconciled. Joseph says this. He says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household And all that you have, do not come to poverty. So Joseph's brothers go back and they tell their father, Jacob, who's also called Israel, that Joseph has risen to power and that he wants to provide for all their needs throughout the family and that they are to come down to Egypt. At first, their father doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe that his favorite son is still alive. And then he sees the gifts that Joseph sent. And it says that his heart was revived. The spirit of the father was revived. And he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And that's where we pick up today's story. There was a lot there, but that's where we pick up today's story. And we're going to see Jacob's journey to Egypt, both his physical journey and his spiritual journey. Before we dig in, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. It is the very word of God, spoken to the people of the Exodus, spoken to the people throughout history, spoken to us today, God. Lord, we pray as we dig into your word 
that we would see how faithful you are, God, how dependable you are, how trustworthy you are, Lord. Even if in our life you seem silent at times, Lord, that we would know that you are always at work on our behalf. Let that drive out the fear that resides in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's start. Genesis 47. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. We're going to spend the bulk of the sermon in those first seven verses, but let's start. Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Looking at verse 1, we see that Joseph, I'm sorry, it's going to be tricky not to mix this up. Jacob takes all that he has, all of his family, all of his tents, all of his belongings, and he starts this trip towards Egypt. But then he stops at Beersheba. And the question is, why does he stop at Beersheba to worship? And one reason is because there, that was an important place. His father and his grandfather worshiped there at Beersheba. It was kind of a sacred area. But the other reason is because Jacob was afraid. You can see here in these verses that God gives only one command. He says to Jacob, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is not a suggestion or a recommendation or an empty promise. This is a command from God. Do not be afraid. Jacob was afraid because he was going to start on a major life transition. Jacob was called to leave the promised land. If you put up the map here, you'll see that Beersheba is the southernmost portion of Israel. It's up there. You can see it. And this was the last place before Jacob would then journey into the wilderness before he would come to the land of Egypt. It was a hard and difficult journey. And there was great risk to go upon it. There was a great chance that Jacob, who was now 137 years old at this time, would die. And so he was afraid. He would ask the same questions you would ask if you were moving. If you're moving to a new country with a new language, a country that you had never been to before, what are the questions you would ask? You would ask questions like, am I going to make it there? Am I going to learn the language? Will I be able to relate with the locals? Will my children be okay? Will they adapt? Will Will they make it? Some of you have moved from overseas to America. You've faced those fears. You know those anxieties. There's excitement. There's anticipation. But there's also fear and leaving everything that is familiar, everything that is safe. Jacob would have also been faced with the questions, what are they going to do to us when we are there? Will they imprison us? Will they enslave us? Will they kill us? And so Jacob is afraid. He's afraid to go past Beersheba, and God comes to him, and he says, fear not. This is the command of God, that we should not fear. God calls Jacob to step out in faith with his entire family, to risk it all 
And God says, do not fear. God knows how powerful fear is on our lives, more than we know. Fear is the biggest obstacle Jacob faces to following God's calling to Egypt. Over 100 times in Scripture, God says, do not be afraid, fear not, I am with you. And he tells it to his people time and 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 time again because he knows that fear is an obstacle to following God in faith. Fear is the silent killer of men's ambitions. Fear has tremendous power over our lives. It paralyzes God's saints from following God's calling. Let me give you one example. We just read earlier the great commission that Jesus gives. Jesus says to his church, he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We know that we are called to reap a harvest. If you've been through membership class, you probably remember the story of Jacob's well and how we are called to go and share Christ with others. But for many of us, including myself, the fear often paralyzes us from doing it. We may make up excuses like, you know, it's not my personality type. You know, I don't know enough of the Bible. I'm going to mess this up. It's going to be bad. It's going to be horrible. But all of those typically are just a cover-up for the fear in our heart. We are afraid that we will be labeled a hypocrite. We're afraid that we'll mess up the message. We're afraid that people won't like us, that they will be mad at us. Maybe we're even afraid that we'll lose our job or our status among our friends. We're afraid people won't like us. We're afraid. We're afraid. And God says, step out in faith. Do not fear. There's a whole list of things that God calls us to do, a whole list of things that God commands us to do, both in his word, but also maybe personally God has called you to do something in your life, but fear is holding you back from doing it. Maybe it's leading your family in devotionals. Maybe it is reaching out to your neighbor. Maybe it is giving money to a missionary. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but fear is paralyzing you from following God's command on your life. I want to read you a quote from Charles Stanley. If you would put it up on the screen, Casey, I'm kind of skipping ahead here. Charles Stanley, pastor, says this, Fear stifles our thinking and action. It creates indecisiveness that results in stagnation. I've known talented people who procrastinate indefinitely rather than risk failure. Lost opportunities cause erosion of confidence, and the downward spiral begins. Let me tell you a quick story, just even from this past week, of how fear keeps us from following God's commands. And I could share you stories from my own life, but I'm going to share you a story from someone else's life. <laughs> I met with a person recently, and uh, we had lunch together, as I like to do, and I was talking to this person, and he professed himself to be a workaholic. And he wasn't happy about it. He was a bit ashamed about it, but he said, I am a workaholic. And so I asked him, I said, do you take a Sabbath? Do you take a day of rest. You know, the Sabbath is one of the Big Ten, you know, not Big Ten football teams, but the Big Ten in, in Genesis, the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, take a rest, worship the Lord your God. 
I said, do you take a Sabbath? And he, he knew that he should. I didn't have to convince him or persuade him. He loves the Lord. And he said, kind of. Okay, what do you mean kind of? He goes, well, I kind of do, but I check email on Sundays. And I said, okay, why do you check email? You know, I'm thinking maybe it's a life or death situation. You have to do it. And he, and he admitted, he said, you know what? It's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid what people might think of me. I'm afraid what will they think if they say, you know what? So-and-so did not get back to me within three hours of when I emailed him. I'm afraid that when I come in Monday morning, the work will be so overwhelming, I won't know what to do. I'm afraid that I will lose my position because response time is very, very important. And so today, this Sunday, is the first day that he's going to go email-free for the whole Sunday. You can pray for him. You don't know who it is, but it's going to be hard. But you see how fear can keep us from following God's commands. We are, either, we are called to fear God, but not fear people. And when we fear people more than we fear God, then we won't follow his commands for our life. Because fear breeds inactivity, hesitation. And so what is the remedy of fear? How do we conquer our fear? All of us have it. All of us struggle with it. All of us are paralyzed with it in one form or another. How do we conquer fear? And the answer is simply faith. Let me be clear. It is not faith in faith. It is not faith in yourself that you can do it, that you're a good person, that you can muster it. It is faith in God. Faith that God will deliver on his promises always. In verses 3 and 4, God makes three promises to Jacob. Actually, he reaffirms three promises to Jacob. The same three promises that he gave to his grandfather Abraham and then to his father Jacob, and now he is, I'm sorry, Isaac, and now he is giving it to Jacob. And these three promises are important, and so I want you to remember them because these three promises are really the three promises you can use to read through the Old Testament. This gives you a framework for the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see God throughout time fulfilling these three promises in the lives of his people. The first promise of God is this. It is a promised people. Turn to your neighbor and say, a promised people. All right, that was awkward. Turn to your neighbor and say, a promised people. Okay, good. I'm going to do this with all three because I want you to remember these because these are important, okay? God first gives this promise of a promised people back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. We're going to, as we look through these promises, you'll see that God gives them first in Genesis 12. Abraham gets afraid. He gets scared. He starts doubting. God gives it to him again in Genesis 15. He then also gives it to his son Isaac, and then God now gives it to Jacob as well. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out. This is the second thing God says to him. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. To become a great nation, to become a people, they have to have lots and lots and lots of babies. But the problem was that Abraham's wife, Sarai, was barren. And she wasn't just barren, she was postmenopausal. She was 85 and she was barren. And Abraham is doubting God's promises. And Abraham comes to God. And God, and he says to God, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And God responds by telling him, Go outside and look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
You know, God shouldn't have to repeat himself when he promises something, but he does time and time and time and time again. He does it in the Old Testament and the New Testament to reassure us of the truth, to reassure us that his promises will come true. He is promising that they will become a great people, that they will become a great nation. And then he reassures this promise to Jacob in verse 3. Jacob, as he takes off from Beersheba, as he takes the plunge, as he takes the leap, he is wondering what is going to happen to this people. Will they become extinct? And in verse 3, God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. God is promising that he will continue what he has promised to the father Abraham. And Isaac. So there is a promised people. There is also a promised presence. All right, turn to your person next to you and say, a promised presence. Good. In the first seven verses of Genesis 12, where God meets with Abraham, God says to Abraham, I will show you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. To your offspring, I will give this land. God time and again says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. He is promising them that no matter where Abraham goes, that God will be with him. That Abraham can never, ever run away from God. That he is always present. Ten years pass. God seems silent. Abraham is afraid that God has abandoned him or forgotten him, that God is no longer with him. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, God, where are you? And we read that the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and said, Fear not, Abraham. Fear not. I am your shield. God is saying, I am with you and I am for you. At Beersheba, God tells the same thing to Jacob. He reminds Jacob that he is with him, that this promised presence applies to him as well. Verse 4, God says to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. God is continuing to remind his saints that he goes with us wherever we go and that he is for us. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 31 that you may be familiar with, but he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so God gives to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, a promised presence that God will be with them. The final is a promised property. Look to the person next to you say, a promised property. Good. You've heard this, the promised land, right? You've heard that phrase before. So I, I got them to all start with the letter P, hoping that that would help you remember it. But a promised property. Genesis 12, 1. Again, when the Lord appears to Abraham, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis 12, God's promise. Again, fast forward 10 years, we get to Genesis 15. Abraham is doubting. Abraham is questioning. Is God going to deliver on his promises? In verse 7 of Genesis 15, we read, And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
But Abraham said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Skipping down. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Right there in Genesis 15, hundreds of years earlier, God is predicting that the Israelites will go down to Egypt, be afflicted for 400 years, and come back out. Jacob is taking that first step in fulfilling that prophecy. God goes on to say, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land. And so you can imagine how Jacob was confused. Jacob knew the promise of God. Jacob knew that he was dwelling in the promised land, and yet he was being called to Egypt. And so God comes and reaffirms his promise. Verse 4, he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Egypt is not your final destination. Your final destination is the promised land, the land of Canaan. When you become a great nation, I will give you this land to possess. God reassures Jacob of his promises because Jacob is afraid and his fear undercuts his power to follow God's calling in his life. And so God calls him to rest on his promises. Let me give you an example. Winter's coming, kind of here, kind of not. Winter's coming and in the winter, our family, one of our family's favorite thing to do is go swimming. And we feel extraordinarily blessed. We belong to the Y, and there's four YMCAs, so we can go to anyone that we want. And a lot of times we go to the east side Y because they have a slide and playground and stuff like that. But sometimes we like to go downtown. Um, One reason I like to go is because they have a hot tub. But the other reason is because there is a diving board. And the kids love the diving board. At least in theory, they love the diving board, right? And if you've been a parent or you've been a kid, you've probably gone through this scenario. So we'll get down to the downtown YMCA and the diving board will be open and the kids will be excited. I'm going to go off the diving board. Yay, this is exciting, right? And so they'll get up on the diving board and they'll stand at the very end, right? Not, and, and they'll look down the diving board. And their smile turns to this overwhelming look, right? And, and they're afraid to go down the diving board. And so you encourage them, even give them a little nudge because you love them. Come on, it's going to be okay. Come on down. And so they, they come down, right? And then they get to the end of the diving board and they, they look over it and then they look at you and they look down and they look at you and, and you go, all right, on the count of three, ready? One, two, three. And they do nothing, right? So then you say, all right, I will get in the water. And you jump in the water. Usually I get a noodle or two to hold me up so I'm nice and secure. And I'll get in front of the diving board and I say, listen, jump. I promise I will catch you. I promise I will catch you. Jump. Come on. And we'll go one, two, three, and nothing, right? Until one day, that great day, when finally they trust you. When finally they will take that leap of faith, believing in your promise that you will catch them, that you will not let them drown. Is that not exactly what God is doing here with Jacob? Jacob is sitting at Beersheba. He is about to jump off into this unknown void, into this wilderness. And God is saying, trust my promises. I will catch you. I will not let you drown. I am with you. I am for you. I will bring you into 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bring you back to possess the land of Canaan. Trust my promises and jump. Does that make sense? This is what God calls us to do by faith, to trust in his promises. You know, Jacob was all in. Jacob jumps. Look at verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry to him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and all his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Imagine this. If you're moving and you aren't just making a decision for yourself, but also for your wives, for your children, for your children's children, for about 70 people in total to move to this strange land. Jacob is all, and we see after this, Jacob has kind of this unwavering audacity in his faith. Fear seems to be expelled from his heart. And he takes this leap of faith, resting on God's promises. Where is God calling you to jump? Where is God calling you to jump out in faith and to trust that he will catch you, to trust that he will not let you drown? Maybe it's simply to be obedient to his word. Maybe you know a command that he has given to you. You know that you are living in sin, but you are too afraid to stop. You're too afraid of what you might lose. You're too afraid that God won't take care of you. God is saying to you, jump by faith, resting on my promises that I will take care for you. Maybe God is calling you to something very specific, something specific to you. Maybe he's calling you to start up a Bible study in your neighborhood or at your work, or maybe even just to have a spiritual conversation with someone that you know. I don't, I don't know what it is. You probably know what God's calling you to do. But fear is paralyzing you. Fear is keeping you from jumping out in faith. God says to you, I got this. Trust me. Rest on my promises. I am with you. We see that these promises for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just for them, but they're also for us. First, we see a promised property. This is actually recorded throughout the New Testament. This is a new paradigm to read Scripture through, and I'd encourage you to look at Scripture as you're thinking of these promises. But God promises us a promised property. I'm going to look. All three of these promises are spoken to us in Revelations chapter 21. Revelations chapter 21 is the place where John looks into heaven and sees what is to come for us, okay? By the way, I already noticed I'm not going to make it all the way through the sermon. But Revelations chapter 21, all right? We see a promised property. John records this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you see that we have a promised property? For those who trust in Christ, this is not your home. You are a sojourner on this earth. Your home is in heaven, and it is eternal, and it is glorious. 
And when we can rest on that promise, when we believe in that promise, doesn't that dispel the fear of living for the here and now to get the most out of this life that I possibly can to live selfishly for myself? Doesn't that free us to say, you know what? I have a home that is coming in which everything will be amazing. So I can live sacrificially now. So we have a promised property. We also have a promised presence. Revelations 21 continues. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. Now, I just want to back up and make sure you know that God dwells with us now. We read in Hebrews 13, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So God is present with us now, and that dries out the fear in our hearts because it doesn't matter who comes against us, we have God on our side. God is with us and God is for us. But this passage in Revelations reminds us that there is a special presence of God where our faith will become sight and our prayer will become praise. God will dwell with us. We will see him face to face. There is a promised presence. And finally, there is a promised people. This, just continuing, Revelation 21, verse 3. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We're also told in 1 Peter that even now we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. God is setting apart a people for himself. In the Old Testament, it was called Israel. In the New Testament, it is called the church. You are part of the people of God. This is a great and glorious promise. You are part of a people that God has redeemed to himself, that he has poured out his promises upon that he has been faithful to fulfill. What fears are keeping you from being all in? When we look forward and we see that God makes these promises, when we understand that he is trustworthy, we can step out in faith. Next week, we're going to look at how God fulfills these promises. I have a friend who... Uh, this is one of his sayings, one of his proverbs. I think it's good. He says, the best indicator, talking about a person, okay, the best indicator of future success is past performance, right? The best indicator of future success is past performance. That's what football teams rely on, baseball teams when they hire someone, right? The best indicator of future success is past performance, so what I want to ask for next time is God, are we able to trust God? Next time we're going to look at God's resume, okay? And we're going to see God has made these audacious promises that he will be with them, that he will provide them a property, that he will make them into a great nation. This, these are weak and feeble people. And so we're going to look at those verses and see, does God deliver on his promises? Does he give, does he do what he says he will do? Because if he doesn't, we cannot trust in him. But if God's resume tells us that God is dependable 100% of the time, then that means we can rest on his promises, right? We can rest on, on his promises and we can step out in faith. 
You know, one of the amazing things is that God's presence is with us now. Did you know that you too can have the blessed presence of God in your life? You know, many of you have heard Jesus called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This is the good news of the gospel that while we were destitute, while we were sinners, while we had hard hearts, as Lauren described, every one of us, God pursued us and loved us. That Emmanuel, God with us, God came into time in the form of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. And then at the end, he was separated from God so that you and I never again have to be that we could trust in Christ, that he could be present with us always and forever, even if we don't feel it. If we trust in Jesus Christ, if we trust that he took on our sin that separates us from God and that he rose from the dead, giving us new life, that we can have new life in communion with God, that God is with us always through the power of his Holy Spirit. There is nowhere you can go. There is nowhere you can run. God is with you. Therefore, you can jump out in faith. I'm still going to use my conclusion. <laughs> you know, you may be here and you may say, you know what? I'm not really tempted to fear. I don't really fear anything. If God calls me to do something, I'll go do it. If that's the case for you, one of two things is true. Either one, you have, God has given you an amazing faith stronger than the Apostle Paul. And if that's true, praise God. But the second reason why fear may not be a temptation in your life is because you won't get on the diving board. It's because you won't even get in the building. You're sitting in the stands. You know, if you play the game, you're going to make an error. You're going to make a mistake. But if you sit in the cheap seats, there's no chance that you'll mess up, right? And when you're sitting in cheap seats, there's no fear of messing up. God has called you into his mission, into his game, to carry out his redemption. And when we do that, we have to step out in faith, jump out in faith, trusting God's promises are true, that he is trustworthy. You see, there is something worse than failure. The thing that is worse than failure is the fear of failure. Because the fear of failure keeps us on the sidelines. The fear of failure keeps us in the cheap seats. The fear of failure keeps us from jumping apart from trusting in God. There's a uh, big PCA pastor named Randy Pope, and he gives this challenge to his congregation and to us. He says, attempt something so big for God that unless he's in it, it's doomed to failure. Let me read it again. Attempt something so big for God that unless he's in it, it's doomed to failure. I want to apply this message to us as a congregation, okay? December 15th is coming up, and Chris has told you that we are having a bacon Christmas party, right? Because nothing says Christmas like bacon, right? Christ has freed us to eat bacon. It is in the book of Acts. I'm not joking. All things are clean. But I'm thinking about this bacon Christmas potluck because uh, for us, it's, it's been the, the biggest outreach event we've had at Jacob's Well is the bacon Christmas potluck, okay? And so I'm praying about this. Lord God, I'm excited, Lord. I, w- I want you to use this for your glory. 
I want people to, to, to encounter Christ because of this. You know, the bacon is great. It's nowhere as good as God is. So we want people to come and experience God and then stay for the bacon, right? Come back for God, even when there is no bacon. And so I'm praying about this, and God puts on my heart. He says, why don't you shoot for 300 people? And I'm thinking, wow, that's, I mean, we usually have like 175 on a Sunday morning. And I hear it, and and so I'm asking people, is it okay that I share that in front of church? Because I'm afraid, right? Like, I'm afraid. What if I say, okay, let's have this goal of having 300 people come to church, right? And and it doesn't happen, and and we fail, and we fall flat on our face. Well, you know what? If we fail, we fail. Who cares? The promises are still true. We are still God's people. He is still with us. And we still have a destiny in heaven for all eternity. I, I, God gives me that number. He puts that on my heart. And we may not get to it. It's okay. But can we jump off the board and trust him? Can we jump off the board and go? The, pur- the purpose of it is not to build Jacob's well. It is not to make our church bigger. As a matter of fact, if someone goes to church someplace else where they proclaim the gospel, please do not invite them. The purpose is to reach out to those who do not know the great and glorious faithful God who loves us and cares for us and overjoices in us and rejoices in us. The God who loves us and cares for us. So can we as a people take a step of faith? This is a ridiculous goal. Can we attempt something so big for God that unless he is in it, it's doomed to failure? You're at the end of the diving board. God is yelling to you, jump, I promise I will catch you. It's your move. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for people who are here that know what you are calling them to do in their lives, but fear has paralyzed them, God. Lord, as we think about your promises this week and next week, God, I pray during the course of this week that they, that they would be overwhelmed by your faithfulness to your promises, that they would be able to jump out in faith knowing that you catch us, God, that you are with us always and forever, that you are faithful to your promises, God. Lord, I pray for those here who have no fear because they have no vision. They have no dreams. They're afraid to dream because they've been hurt in the past, God. Pray that you would stir stir their hearts, God, to a new passion and zeal for you and for your kingdom, God. Lord, I know it sounds funny, but I want to pray for the bacon potluck. Not that people would enjoy the bacon, but that they would enjoy you, God. This is just a platform, an excuse, a reason to get people to come and hear the gospel, Lord. I pray that people would come and they would see the hope of Christmas and that they would continue through Christmas to see the glory that you are with us through your son, Jesus Christ, and through his spirit. And that they wouldn't just stay through Christmas, they would stay through New Year's and they would stay beyond God. And that they too will be able to stand up in front like Lauren and Dana did today and proclaim how at one time their heart was hard but that you have softened it and drawn them to yourself, God. We are a scared people. Help us, Lord God, to rely on your promises, to know that you're with us always to the very end of the age. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.